Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. They bore Carter breathless into that cliffside cavern and through monstrous labyrinths beyond. When he struggled, as he did at first by instinct, they tickled him with deliberation. They made no sound at all themselves, and even their membranous wings were silent. They were frightfully cold and damp and slippery, and their paws needed one detestably. Soon, they were plunging hideously downward through inconceivable abysses in a whirling, giddying, sickening rush of dank, tomb-like air. And Carter felt they were shooting into the ultimate vortex of shrieking and demonic madness. He screamed again and again, but whenever he did so, the black paws tickled him with greater subtlety, and he saw a sort of gray phosphorescence about, and guessed they were coming even to that inner world of subterranean horror, of which dim legends tell, and which is litten only by the pale death fire, wherewith reeks the ghoulish air, and the primal mists of the pits at Earth's core. At last, far below him, he saw faint lines of grey and ominous pinnacles which he knew must be the fabled peaks of Thok. Awful and sinister, they stand in the haunted dusk of sunless and eternal depths, higher than man may reckon, and guarding terrible valleys where the bulls crawl and burrow nastily. But Carter pretended to look at them rather than his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black beings with smooth, oily, whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward toward each other, bat wings whose beating made no sound, ugly, prehensile paws, and barbed tails that lashed needlessly, disquietingly. And worst of all, they never spoke or laughed and never smiled because they had no faces at all to smile with, but only a suggestive blankness where a face ought to be. All they ever did was clutch and fly and tickle. That was the way of the night gaunts. As the band flew lower, the peaks of Thok rose gray and towering on all sides. One saw clearly that nothing lived on that austere and impassive granite of the endless twilight. At still lower levels, the death fires and the air gave out, and one met only the primal blackness of the void, save aloft, where the thin peaks stood out goblin-like. Soon the peaks were very far away, and nothing about but great rushing winds with the darkness of nethermost grottos in them. And in the end, the night gaunts landed on a floor of unseen things, which felt like layers of bones, and left Carter all alone in that black valley. To bring him thither was the duty of the night gaunts at Cardnagronic, and this done, they flapped away silently. 
When Carter tried to trace their flight, he found he could not, since even the peaks of Thok had faded out of sight. There was nothing anywhere but blackness, and horror, and silence, and bones. Now Carter knew from a certain source that he was in the Vale of Panath, where crawl and burrow the enormous bulls. But he did not know what to expect, because no one has ever seen a bull, or even guessed what such a thing may be like. Bulls are known only by dim rumor, from the rustling they make amongst the mountains of bones, and the slimy touch they have when they wriggle past one. They cannot be seen, because they creep in the dark. Carter did not wish to meet a bull, so he listened intently for any sound in the unknown depths of bones about him. Even in this fearsome place, he had a plan and an objective. For whispers of Pnath and its approaches were not unknown to one with whom he had talked much in the old days. In brief, it seemed fairly likely that this was the spot into which all the ghouls of the waking world cast the refuse of the feastings, and that if he but had good luck, he might stumble upon that mighty crag taller even than Thok's peaks, which marked the edge of their domain. Showers of bones would tell him where to look, and once found, he could call to a ghoul to let down a ladder, for, strange to say, he had a very singular link with these terrible creatures. A man he had known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures, with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard. He had actually made friends with the ghouls that had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting, meeping, and glimmering. This man had vanished at last, and Carter was not sure, but that he might find him now and use for the first time in dreamland that faraway English of his dim waking life. In any case, he felt he could persuade a ghoul to guide him out of Panath, and it would be better to meet a ghoul which one can see than a bull which one cannot see. So Carter walked in the dark and ran when he thought he heard something among the bones underfoot. Once he bumped into a stony slope, and clatter which reached far up in the air, and became sure he'd come nigh the crag of the ghouls. He was not sure he could be heard from this valley miles below, but realized that the inner world has strange laws. As he pondered, he was struck by a flying bone so heavy that it must have been a skull, and therefore... Realizing his nearness to the fateful crag, he sent up as best he might that meeping cry, which is the call of the ghoul. Sound travels slowly, so it was some time before he heard an answering glibber, but it came at last, since there was no telling what might have been stirred up among those bones by his shouting. Indeed, it was not long before he actually did hear a vague rustling afar off. As this thoughtfully approached, 
he became more and more comfortable, for he did not wish to move away from the spot where the ladder would come. Finally, the tension grew almost unbearable, and he was about to flee in panic when the thud of something on the newly heaped bones nearby drew his notice from the other sound. It was the ladder, and after a minute of groping, he had it taut in his hands. But the other sound did not cease, and followed him even as he climbed. He had gone fully five feet from the ground when the rattling beneath waxed empathic. It was a good ten feet up when something swayed the ladder below. At a height, which must have been fifteen or twenty feet, he felt his whole side brushed by a great, slippery length. It grew alternately convex and concave with wriggling, and thereafter he climbed desperately to escape the unendurable nuzzling of that loathsome and overfed bull whose form no man might see. For hours, he climbed with aching arms and blistered hands, seeing in the gray deathfire and Thok's uncomfortable pinnacles. At last, he discerned above him the projecting edge of the great crag of ghouls, whose vertical side he could not glimpse. Hours later, he saw a curious face peering over as a gargoyle peers over a parapet of Notre Dame. This almost made him lose his hold through faintness. But a moment later, he was himself again. For his vanished friend Richard Pickman had once introduced him to a ghoul. And he knew well their canine faces and slumping forms and unmentionable idiosyncrasies. So he had himself well under control when that hideous thing pulled him out of the dizzy emptiness over the edge of the crag and did not scream the partly consumed refuse heaped at one side or at the squatting circles of ghouls who gnawed and watched curiously. He was now on a dim lit and plain whose sole topographical features were great boulders in the entrances of burrows. The ghouls were in general respectful even if one did attempt to pinch him several others eyed his leanness speculatively. Through patient livering, he made inquiries regarding his vanished friend, and he found he had become a ghoul of some prominence in abysses nearer the waking world. A greenish, elderly ghoul offered to conduct him to Pickman's present habitation. So, despite a natural loathing, he followed the creature into a capacious burrow, and crawled after him for hours in the blackness of rank mold. They emerged on a dim plain, strewn with singular relics of earth, old gravestones, broken urns, grotesque fragments of monuments, and Carter realized with some emotion that he was probably nearer the waking world than at any other time since he had gone down the seven hundred steps from the cavern of flame to the gate of deeper slumber. There, on a tombstone of 1768, 
stolen from the granary burying ground in Boston, sat the ghoul, which was once the artist Richard Upton Pickman. It was naked and rubbery, and had acquired so much of the ghoulish physiognomy that its human origin was already obscure. But it still remembered a little English and was able to converse with Carter in grunts and monosyllables, helped out now and then by the glimmering of ghouls. When it learned that Carter wished to get it to the enchanted wood, and from there to the city Celephiase in Uthnargai, beyond the Tenarian Hills, it seemed rather doubtful. For these ghouls of the waking world do no business in the graveyards of Upper Dreamland, leaving that to the web-footed womps that are swamped in dead cities, and many things intervene betwixt their gulf and the enchanted wood, including the terrible kingdom of the Gugs. The Gugs, hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods in the crawling chaos near Lothotep, until one night an abomination of theirs reached the ears of Earth's gods and they were banished to caverns below. Only a great trapdoor of stone with an iron ring connects the abyss of the earth ghouls with the enchanted wood. And this the gogs are afraid to open because of a curse. But a mortal dreamer could traverse their cavern realm and leave by that door is inconceivable. For mortal dreamers were their former food. And they have legends of the toothsomeness of such dreamers even though banishment has restricted their diet to the ghasts, those repulsive beings which die in the light, and which live in the walls of Zin and leap on long hind legs like kangaroos. So the ghoul that was Pikmin advised Carter either to leave the abyss at Sarcomand, the deserted city in the valley below Lang, or black, nitrous stairways guarded by winged Diorite lions lead down from dreamland to the lower gulfs, or to return through a churchyard to the waking world and begin the quest anew down the seventy steps of light slumber, the cavern of flame, and the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber in the enchanted wood. This, however, did not suit the seeker, for he knew nothing of the way from Lang to Uthnargai, and was likewise reluctant to awake, lest he forget all he had so far gained in this dream. It were disastrous to his quest to forget the august and celestial faces of those seamen from the north, who traded onyx in Celephiace, and who, being the sons of gods, must point the way to the cold waste and Kadath, where the great ones dwell. After much persuasion, the ghoul consented to guide his guest inside the great wall of the Gug's kingdom. There was one chance that Carter might be able to steal through that twilight realm of circular stone towers at an hour when the giants would be all gorged and snoring indoors and reach the central tower with the sign of Koth upon it, which has the stairs leading up to that stone trapdoor in the enchanted wood. 
Pikmin even consented to lend three ghouls to help with a tombstone lever in raising the stone door. For of ghouls, the gogs are somewhat afraid, and they often flee from their own colossal graveyards when they see feasting there. He also advised Carter to disguise as a ghoul himself, shaving the beard he had allowed to grow, for ghouls have none, wallowing naked in the mold to get the correct surface, and loping in the usual slumping way, with his clothing carried in a bundle, as if it were a choice morsel from a tomb. They would reach the city of the Gags, which is coterminous with the whole kingdom, through the proper burrows, emerging in a cemetery not far from the stair-containing Tower of Koth. They must beware, however, of a large cave near the cemetery, for this is the mouth of the vaults of Zin, and the vindictive ghasts are always on watch there, murderously for those denizens of the upper abyss who hunt and prey on them. The ghasts try to come out when the gugs sleep, and they attack ghouls as readily as gugs, but they cannot discriminate. They are very primitive, and eat one another. The gugs have sent a sentry at a narrow place in the vaults of Zin, but he is often drowsy, and is sometimes surprised by a party of ghasts. Though ghasts cannot live in real light, they can endure the gray twilight of the abyss for hours. So, at length, Carter crawled through endless burrows with three hillful ghouls bearing the slate gravestone of Colonel Nehemiah Derby, Obit, 1719, from the Charter Street burying ground in Salem. When they came again into the open twilight, they were in a forest of vast, lichened monoliths, reaching nearly as high as the eye could see, and forming the modest gravestones of the Gugs, on the right of the hole of which they wriggled, and, seen through aisles of monoliths, was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers, mounting up illimitable into the gray air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are thirty feet high. Ghouls come here often, for a buried Gug will feed a community for almost a year, and even with the added peril, it is better to burrow for Gugs than to bother with the graves of man. Carter now understood the occasional titan bones he had felt beneath him in the Vale of Panath. Straight ahead, and just outside the cemetery, rose a sheer perpendicular cliff at whose base an immense and forbidding cavern yawned. This the ghouls told Carter to avoid as much as possible, since it was the entrance to the unhallowed, the vaults of Zin, where Gugs hunt gas in the darkness. And truly, that warning was soon well justified, for the moment a ghoul began to creep toward the towers to see if the hour of the Gugs resting been ripely timed. There glowed in the gloom of that great cavern's mouth, first one pair of yellowish-red eyes, and then another, implying that the gugs were one century less, and that ghasts 
have indeed an excellent sharpness of smell. So the ghoul returned to the burrow and motioned his companions to be silent. It was best to leave the gas to their own devices, and there was a possibility that they might soon withdraw, since they must naturally be rather tired after coping with the gug sentry in the black vaults. After a moment, something about the size of a small horse hopped out into the gray twilight, and Carter turned sick at the aspect of that scabrous and unwholesome beast, whose face is so curiously human, despite the absence of a nose, a forehead, and other important particulars. Presently, three other ghasts hopped out to join their fellow, and a ghoul glimmered softly at Carter that their absence of battle scars was a bad sign. It proved that they had not fought the Gug sentry at all, but merely slipped past him as he slept, so that their strength and savagery were still unimpaired and would remain so till they had found and disposed of a victim. It was very unpleasant to see those filthy and disproportioned animals, which soon numbered about fifteen, grubbing about and making their kangaroo leaps in the gray twilight where titan towers and monoliths arose. But it was still more unpleasant when they spoke among themselves in the coughing gutturals of ghasts. And yet, horrible as they were, they were not so horrible as what presently came out of the cave after them with disconcerting suddenness. It was a paw, fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that, a great black third arm, to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then, two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled into view. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. The head was chiefly terrible because of the mouth. That mouth had great yellow fangs and ran from the top to the bottom of the head, opening vertically instead of horizontally. But before that unfortunate Gug could emerge from the cave and rise to his full twenty feet, vindictive gasps were upon him. Carter feared for a moment that he would give an alarm and arouse all its kin, until a ghoul softly glibbered that Gugs have no voice, but talk by means of facial expression. The battle which then ensued was a truly frightful one. From all sides, the venomous ghasts rushed feverishly at the creeping Gug, nipping and tearing with their muzzles, and mauling murderously with their hard, pointed hooves. All the time, they coughed excitedly, screaming when the great vertical mouth of the Gug would occasionally bite into one of their number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused the sleeping city. Had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern, as it was, the tumult soon receded altogether from sight in the blackness, 
and only occasional evil echoes marked its continuance. Then the most alert of the ghouls gave the signal for all to advance, and Carter followed the loping three out of the forest monoliths and into the dark, noisome streets of that awful city, whose rounded towers of cyclopean stone soared up beyond the sight. Silently, they shambled over that rough rock pavement, hearing with disgust the abominable muffled snortings from great black doorways, which marked the slumber of the gugs. Apprehensive of the ending of the rest hour, the ghouls set a somewhat rapid pace, but even so, the journey was no brief one, for distances in that town of giants are on a great scale. At last, however, they came to a somewhat open space before a tower even vaster than the rest, above whose colossal doorway was fixed a monstrous symbol, which made one shudder without knowing its meaning. This was the central tower with the sign of Koth, and those huge stone steps just visible through the dusk were the beginning of the great flag, leading to Upper Dreamland and the Enchanted Wood. There now began a climb of interminable length and utter blackness, made almost impossible by the monstrous size of the steps, which were fashioned for gugs and were therefore nearly a yard high. Of their number, Carter could form no just estimate, for he soon became so worn out that the tireless and elastic goals were forced to aid him. All through the endless climb, there lurked the peril of detection and pursuit, for though no gug dares lift the stone door to the forest because of the Great One's curse, there are no such restraints concerning the tower and the steps, and escaped ghasts are often chased even to the very top. So sharp are the ears of Gugs that the bare feet and hands of the climbers might readily be heard when the city awoke, and it would of course take but little time for the striding giants, accustomed from their ghast hunts in the vaults of Zin to seeing without light overtake their smaller and slower quarry on those cyclopean steps. It was very depressing to reflect that the silent pursuing gugs would not be heard at all, but would come very suddenly and shockingly in the dark upon the clamors. Nor could the traditional fear of gugs for ghouls be depended upon in that peculiar place where the advantages lay so heavily with the gugs there is also some peril in the furtive and venomous ghasts which frequently hopped up into the tower during the sleep hour of the gugs. If the gugs slept long and the ghasts returned soon from their deed in the cavern, the scent of the climbers might easily be picked up by those loathsome and ill-disposed things, in which case it would almost be better to be eaten by a gug. Then, after eons of climbing, there came a cough from the darkness above, and matters assumed a very grave and unexpected turn. It was clear that a ghast, or perhaps even more, had strayed into that tower before the coming of Carter and his guides, 
and it was equally clear that his peril was very close. After a breathless second, the leading ghoul pushed Carter to the wall and arranged his two kinsfolk in the best possible way, with the old slate tombstone raised for a crushing blow whenever the enemy came in sight. Ghouls can see in the dark, so the party was not as badly off as Carter would have been alone. In another moment, the clatter of hooves revealed the downward hopping of at least one beast, and the slab-bearing ghouls poised their weapon for a desperate blow. Presently, two yellowish-red eyes flashed into view, and the panting of the ghast became audible above its clattering. As it hopped down the step just above the ghouls, they wielded the ancient gravestone with prodigious force. So there was only a wheeze and a choking before the victim collapsed in a noxious heap. There seemed to be only this one animal, and after a moment of listening, the ghouls tapped Carter as a sign to proceed again. As before, they were obliged to aid him and he was glad to leave that place of carnage where the ghast's uncouth remains sprawled invisible in the blackness. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. <laughs>